Hello and welcome to the introductory episode of the Mostly Erlang podcast. This will be a regular, hopefully weekly podcast on programming mostly in Erlang. We will occasionally cover other functional languages, uh, Haskell, OCaml, Clojure, that type of thing, um, and other software topics. Uh, we are joined today by I'm joined today by three other developers. Uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Okay, I'm Simon St. Lawrence. I'm a senior editor at O'Reilly Media. I spend most of my daytime life in JavaScript and web technologies. I've been a web guy for, uh, I guess, 20 years now. That's troubling. Um, anyway, lately I've been exploring a, a wider range of languages. I actually came to Erlang by the strange route of spending time in XSLT and then editing books on Erlang. I was intrigued by what more we could do with pattern matching and just kind of the the superpowers that Erlang seems to offer lots of us. So I, I hope we'll uh, see a lot more exciting things happening here. I'm Fred I'm the author of Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good. I'm also a full-time Erlang developer. I've been so for a couple of years now, maybe, yeah, a couple of years. Uh, prior to that, I gave Erlang courses for Erlang Solutions Limited. And before that, I was a web developer doing PHP stuff and wanting to uh, escape that, basically. So I'm a fairly young programmer, maybe five years experience, but yeah. So that's about that's about it for me. Hi, I'm Justin Sheehy. I'm at Bash Otesho. I spent a number of years uh, at Akamai, at some U.S. government contractors, and at some startups you've never heard of, because that's how most of them go. Um, at Basho, we've done a few things that I think the airline community has heard of, like Web Machine and Reoc and Rebar. Uh, you know, and presumably part of this podcast, we might talk about you know what those choices mean. Um, and I'm Zach Kesson. I'm an API developer at a tiny startup in Tel Aviv, and I'm also the author of. Uh, programming web applications with Erlang, which Simon edited and heard was one of the tech reviewers on. So thanks guys for that. Uh, and I seem to spend my days working with Erlang, uh, and a lot of rebar and web machines. So, um, that is my background and I've been developing for the web for 20 years, started in Perl, moved on to PHP and I picked up Erlang because it looked interesting. And I wrote a book because I discovered HR people in Israel, if they discover you know PHP, don't let you leave. Uh, you can't get a job doing anything else if you know PHP here. So I wrote a book to uh, get over that problem. Uh, plus, it was kind of fun. Anyway, so today's topic is inspired by a tweet Simon made a while back where he said that if he was to build Skynet, the killer artificial intelligence from the Terminator movies, he would use Erlang. So, Simon, why did you say that? Well, first of all, I wouldn't build Skynet. The... Uh the reason I wrote that, though, was, you know, the the vision in the Terminator of this basically unkillable system. The Terminator itself is slightly killable, but the system itself is extremely hard to defeat. It just keeps coming back and coming back. And Erlang, Erlang's superpowers are pretty similar. You can build systems that will keep keep going until their very last node is gone, until uh, their very last process gives up. I I love that you can, you know, keep systems running while you're updating them. I love that you can distribute stuff much more broadly than I've seen in other languages. Uh 
without really spending a huge amount of time figuring out the how of it. If you've, if you've done things right, things actually work more easily than it seems like they possibly should. So somewhere in the background, I worry that Skynet's uh, developers are buying introducing Erlang and skipping the little piece I put in there about please use it for good. We'll uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I mean, I think that notion of you know systems that just keep going at every level is is one of the things that that we found really appealing. Uh, you know, when building databases on Erlang, um, we had a, a funny moment that worked out really well for us that we owe almost entirely to the supervisor notion of the way to build systems in Erlang, where a few years ago we had a very big customer who was stress testing all kinds of different infrastructure software they were going to use, and they were breaking it all on purpose, right? Things that they were doing things to just figure out how systems failed when too much happened to them. And their test against React, and, and this really isn't about React so much as it is against almost anything written the right way in Erlang, uh, confused them because they'd hit it with, you know, so much of the kinds of traffic that would have caused anything to fail. But by the time they went to look at it again, it was fine. And all that was happening, of course, as you know, any of you will know, is that they were you know, overwhelming and crushing one supervised worker process. And literally, by the time their test could come back and look at what had happened, all evidence that they'd broken the system was gone. Uh, that led to some fun conversations, especially since some of those same people had kind of made fun of us for using Erlang before they did that. We should probably, before we go on, for people who are experienced with Erlang, know how supervisors work, but not everybody listening to this will necessarily have used Erlang before or used it extensively before. So we should probably explain how supervisors work and how the let it crash philosophy in Erlang works. Well, I mean, that, that kind of ties in with the point I wanted to make regarding Erlang at that point, is that it's one of the few languages that... Uh, instead of trying to prevent failures at all costs, just accepts the fact that failure is going to happen no matter what. And this is something you usually get in people implementing distributed systems because network stacks, hardware, everything's going to fail at one point or another. And so you just expect the failure. But most languages that are made to run a single machine kind of expect that everything's going to be all right except if the programmer messes something up which is not always the case in, in real world, and often they just do mess up. And Erlang has this idea that stuff will fail and it's going to fail, and you have to come back from failures or perhaps because you just have to come back. And the supervisor is tied to that by having the idea that the process is going to fail at one point or another. And what you want to do in most cases is going to be to restart it, because most of the bugs you'll have, uh, will be transient bugs that the programmer has not seen before. And just starting from a new state will bring stuff back in a clean way. So, yeah, I, I think that's part of the reason why Erlang can be seen as resilient is because it does expect to fail and deal with that rather than just trying to prevent failure. So it's closer to having an immune system instead of only hygiene to protect yourself against diseases. The other thing that's nice is it makes your code a lot shorter. Uh, one thing I always say is when you go from like a language like C, where you have to do all the memory management yourself, to a language like a Python, for example, where you have a garbage collector, you can sort of free up a chunk of your brain and not worry about allocating and freeing memory. When you go to, from a language like Java or Python to Erlang, 
you then can move the error handling out of the bandwidth of your main program. So you free up another chunk of your brain to actually solve the problem of whatever it is you're trying to build. So that's something else. No, I, I absolutely agree. I think that's one of the things that makes well-structured Erlang code so much easier to read and understand in a lot of cases is that it says what it intends to do, and you get to put what happens when everything blows up somewhere else. I think that makes a huge difference in maintainability. So... One of the things that was fun while I was writing Introducing Erlang was that I hadn't quite figured out how you'd let it crash works yet. And so when I was demonstrating features, I was doing so in ways that to my tech reviewers, thank you, Ferd, and to Steve Anosky, you know, looked like defensive programming. And why would you do that? This is Erlang. You don't have to do that. So there was a lot of uh, simplification made possible by the uh, by this approach. And I think it'll help readers as well as coders. Uh, it's kind of similar to uh, I've read before, I can't remember where, about Amazon's one-click buy button and how when he asked, uh, when, the, when the engineers at Amazon were asked to do the one-click buy button, they kept having prompts and they're like, oh, are you sure you really want to buy that? Are you sure about this? And I think it was uh, whoever was the CEO at Amazon just had to drill into their head. It's one button and that's what you do. And as programmers, I think we tend to do that with, but what if this fails? And what if this fails? And you kind of have all these extra steps just in case something fails that you didn't plan for. And you end up having a very, very cluttered way of programming where everything is just, am I sure this thing failed or not? Am I sure it failed or not? And when you just remove that, you have the equivalent of the one-click buy button in programming, which is just, this is what I want to do, and it's going to work. And if it doesn't, then something else takes care about. You're, you're decoupling the hair handling from the happy path. Both still exist, but they're not in the same location at yeah. that point. And um, that's what Erlang is that in general, when you don't go on the happy path, it lets you know when something fails. There's some languages I've dealt with where things can go wrong, and unless you're being really careful to look for them, you'd never even know it. So you're writing code that's sort of doing who knows what, and, you know, it can go wrong and keep going, and then, you know, you have no idea what your code is going to actually do. I want errors to cause things to stop. Well, I, I think it is easy to take any good technique like this and, and buy into it a little too much, right? You know, I think one thing that is tricky for people sort of just as they start to become experienced in the Erlang way of building things is to do that all the time when there are places where you legitimately do want to figure out everything locally about what went wrong. So I think a good example of that is often... Uh, user interaction, right? If the thing that failed is the user or, you know, your outside edge of your system, in a lot of cases, the, the whole philosophy of just destroy everything near that and keep moving doesn't work, right? Because you need to actually help something outside your system recover. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I do think that's where some of the subtlety of the whole let it crash philosophy is important is that you can let everything crash if it's something that you locally have the ability to put back into a good state. No, I, I, I agree with that. And this, the, the system that Ericsson used before Erlang was Plex. And from what I recall hearing from people who worked with it, was that Plex didn't have anything very similar to Erlang's Let It Crash and whatnot. But what it did is that it forced people to divide memory into categories. Memory that was mutable, memory that was always fixed, and there was some kind of different ways of separating memory. And this is something that I think they lost when writing Erlang. You have this idea about 
state that can be lost and whatnot, but you lost the idea that this is vital state you cannot afford to lose. And this is state that you can actually afford to lose and whatnot. And the knowledge is still there, but implicitly, because when you have the supervision tree, the top-level supervisors and the worker closer to the root uh, are usually state that you can't afford to lose as easily that everything that's closer to the very, very far down the branches of the tree. But that kind of stuff is actually implicit and not something that airline programmers are thought to think about. Whereas a language where you have to isolate, this is transient state, this is permanent state, this is vital state, this is dynamic state provided by the user and whatnot. When you have that kind of separation, either at the framework or language level, uh, probably helps a lot into making something even more reliable. And that's yeah. something that we lost. Uh, sort of like going the, into uh, Erlang. Pure versus impure code, an impure monadic code in Haskell, where you have sort of these two states and you have to write the code differently depending on what you're trying to do. Uh, Erlang doesn't really have that. Easy, I mean, well, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't either. But yeah, it's not quite. Well, right. I mean, in a, the closest thing we have to it in Erlang really is you have the local heap of a process, and then you can have a you know either node-wide heap which you can use in some ways. Or, and this is why it's not present to most programmers, to get something that survives failures at that size and that is, you know, not going to be damaged by it, you need a distributed system, right? You need to have something that's actually aware at that level. Erlang has some piece of that, right? Separation at the per-process level of memory for some things, for instance. But Erlang, as it is today, doesn't actually provide you that at the multi-node level because, even though it gives you tools for building multi-node systems, Erlang out of the box is not actually a multi-node thing. It's a single-node programming environment with really good communication mechanisms. Yeah. That yeah. Would make it the nice. only thing it has out of the box regarding distribution is takeover and failover on two machines or three machines or whatever, but it doesn't have whatever it would be similar to cloud computing to build a Skynet. Well, going back to the building Skynet, so if we did want to build <laughs> an unkillable system where, you know, as soon as a node went down, you'd build up more because we're doing something like that. I mean, what would these sort of key factors be? I would think you'd need a way to spawn new nodes very quickly through a monitoring system. And I think you just need to have enough nodes up at any given time that any attack would be sufficiently unlikely to take down all of them before you could add new? Am I missing something? How else would you, you know, think about building it? Well, I think large, resilient systems, the hard problem is sort of what we were hinting at a minute ago. It's, it's always actually state, right? It's not having enough mm -hmm. parts. It's having a continuous view of the world, regardless of what the parts are, right? So you need to have your state be managed across that system, you know, through some kind of distributed agreement and distributed storage because uh, your ability to bring up new nodes doesn't help you any if they can't actually continue the job you were doing before something else went wrong. Right. I mean, uh, I'm guessing the best pattern for some, something like that is to have, let's say, the configuration of the network itself be the state of the network, which is kind of similar to what you'd get into a neural network, right? You have the equivalent of neurons which could be part of the system, and what they do is connect together to represent given patterns, and you have redundancy and whatnot, so you can take part of the system, but the redundant parts are still there. And it needs to be kind of completely isolated for each component 
very, very loosely coupled in general because otherwise things like net split, which are going to happen more and more, the bigger you grow, are going to take you down because the state is just going to be inconsistent. So I'm thinking that for something like Skynet, unsurprisingly, something akin to a neural network would work kind of good because, I mean, that's brains can work and sustain damage and just add new information and whatnot as you go. Right. I mean, if you had you were using distributed data store of Manessia or something else, and you bring up a new node, you still need to copy the data onto it from other nodes. And if it's large data, that could take a while. If yeah. you have to store permanent state, I think you're doing it wrong for something kind of scale. That would be worldwide, global, the whole planet as a computer. You, you can't have state that's sitting in a precise place and expect it to be there has to be reachable from many places and just be kind of somewhere that can find itself its own way or whatever. I mean, otherwise you'll have something, I don't know, equivalent to DNS system for entries into your storage or I don't know. feels pretty confusing. DNS is a pretty good example. Go ahead, Simon. Sorry. Well, it just—it seems like you need to have two things. You need to have the malevolence piece that just keeps coming back no matter what hits it, and then some way for it to reestablish communications with the ways it inflicts its interests. Um, but beyond that, I think there actually isn't all that much state that has to be preserved. It's kind of weird. Um, the the thing that I keep seeing is that we that programmers routinely assume that there's more state that has to stay around to get something done than there actually needs to be. I, I, I don't quite know how to express this, but I've seen similar things in, in web programming in web services in, and now watching people try to get their head around rest. Um, the thing that I really like about Erlang is that it feels to me like I can define things down so that, you know, I, I can define a, a minimal set of start, starting circumstances and, and kind of work my way back out to something bigger. That sounds vague, but that's, it, it just, it seems like it simplifies a lot of the, the normal conversations around how do I get started? How do I get restarted? Yeah. Well, and I think the, the mention of, I think Ferd mentioned, you know, DNS as well. You might just be mm-hmm. like DNS. I think that's actually a perfect example because, you know, I'm going to ignore the malevolent science fiction part of this and just talk about, you know, really big, resilient systems. And DNS is one of the best ones we've got. It's a system that provides you with, you know, essentially, you know, useful primitives in a really large distributed system. Uh, and here I mean, you know, the world's DNS, not one DNS zone. You know, and that's about, you know, delegation. It's about eventual consistency, right? That notion of you don't all have to have all the state, mm-hmm. but you need to be able to figure out who to ask if you need more recent or more authoritative state. Uh, you know, I, th- I think DNS is a, you know, nearly ideal example of the best we've done so far at building reasonably resilient large systems. And, you know, when you update your DNS entries, it doesn't necessarily propagate to the whole network instantaneously it does take some time in the olden days it could have been as much as 24 hours nowadays i suspect it's more like three to five minutes at the worst case but you know dns updates do take time well and i think that's true of basically every large reasonably resilient system right the same thing is true of the web as a distributed system right which is, you know, if you've written a web app, you've written something that takes advantage of eventual consistency because there's browser caches and there's CDNs and there's things like that. Um, you know, and that plus the fact that it's built on DNS, 
uh, as well as you know HTTP, which is another protocol that supports that kind of eventual notion. I think is part of how you get a big resilient system. It's it's a it's a complex problem. You know, it's a hard problem. How do you build resilient system. I think Erlang gives you some great tools, but even with the tools in Erlang, it still takes some real doing. You know, it takes some real know-how Erl- to get it right. Erlang itself, I think, is not ready to build something like Skynet. It gives you the right primitives to do it locally, but it's still not there for something like you say, well, I'm deploying a cloud tomorrow, I'm doing it in Erlang, and it's giving me everything I need. It's very, very local in how it organizes clusters, and nature of cap theorem and the uh, trade-offs to do between the consistency and latencies and whatnot mean that every system is, to a certain degree, different than others, depending on the data it has and whatever state it has to share. And Erlang providing that out of the box is kind of very, very complex. There's React Core that does something kind of close to that for that, but even then, I think it's still mostly for within a single data center and whatnot. And the idea that you have very, very long latencies and net splits and whatnot is a problem often left at the programmer level because you still have people, what they want is to have consistent data without net splits and they're not ready to accept that stuff is going to fail. And the, the failure at some point has to go back to a higher level in the system and say, well, data is not going to be perfect all the time. And how do you deal with that and how do you make the best compromise out of uh, all the stuff that you have to expect will fail and break and not be the way you want it to be. And I think that's, you know, part of it is going back to, you know, when we were all trained in school and stuff, you know, we were taught, you know, data should be consistent and, you know, you should handle errors. And, you know, that's the way most of us learned. And to make that well, we also learned happened. all sorts of other bad ideas, like that you should, you know, well, that you came up a little later and, learned that inheritance was actually a reasonable way to structure programs, right? All sorts of bad ideas get taught. Yeah, uh, I, never, I never drank the mm-hmm. object-oriented Kool-Aid. Well, good. Um, I but, uh, but I think it's right that, you know, what, what Ferd was saying, right? This, you don't get, you know, this sort of large-scale, resilient distributed system stuff for free from anything today. You know, as you mentioned, React Core is certainly still is designed to help with some problems of you know, beyond what Erlang gives you, but still not that kind of thing. You know, uh, it seems like the Erlang primitives are great for if you're building a network of, you know, two to five machines, maybe. They, um, they can go easily up to 40, 50, 90 if you have the network to support it. Uh, the problem at that point is, is your own software that you write with Erlang ready to deal with that scale? Because right. if you just go to something like AWS, at that scale, you might have over a failure a day which is going to be something like 5% of your system that might die at any given hour of the day. And are you ready to deal with that? And did you program stuff that could deal with that? Right. And it's, I think it's probably easier in Erlang than it would be in, say, Node.js or Java. But that doesn't I, I, mean it's... Erlang pretty much just gets you there faster at that step. It just solves... <laughs> Yeah, it just give, it just gets you closer to the hard problems faster. Right. The key, I think you mentioned a minute ago, is primitives, right? Erlang has really, really good primitives, but that's, mm-hmm. that's different from whole solutions, right? The ability to have things like links and monitors and supervisors and all this, those are really useful things to have in your runtime and your language. But that's completely different from a, you know, just free distributed system, just tack a name on it. Yeah, I think on the 
the ultra large scale question, and I don't think this is unique to Erlang. I just, I feel like there's another level of conversation that, you know, Erlang provides a great foundation with its primitives, but at that scale, there needs to be a whole different kind of supervisory approach, communications approach. And it's, I think it's something that could be built on Erlang, but isn't built into Erlang and probably shouldn't be at this point. Well, when you get to big distributed systems, having supervision is kind of a hard thing to do because of the idea of a net split, right? The supervisor in Erlang kind of assumes that it can reach the processes. And even Erlang in general, the way it's shipped from Ericsson doesn't really deal with the idea of a net split so that you have a worker that's still alive but not the supervisor and whatnot. And part of the big tricky challenge is dealing with distribution, clock times, the SKUs you have in times and whatnot. Many, many, many programmers, even exper- with, with, with experience in distributed system, will still use a timestamp coming from the system to tag events and expect some kind of global ordering. And at some point, it, it just doesn't scale. You even have relative times. And sometimes I just dread the day that you have to do networks over time and space and whatnot when you have hours of difference and maybe gravity that just skews the clocks and the time is just not the same at the absolute scale anymore because it's relative. I, I read, and, I heard somewhere that Google actually puts like GPS and atomic clocks on their servers to get consistent time. Which is, yeah, yeah, that's, 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 sorry, go ahead. That's not something most of us are going to be able to do. Yeah, and at some point it's not possible, not something that's going to be possible to do at all. Uh, well, NASA, the I think, in there. Beyond, it's, it's not possible to get it perfect even for them. That's in the Spanner paper yeah. that, that they mentioned that and what they're doing, but what they're doing isn't getting perfect, consistent time across all their nodes. That's actually not possible. What they're doing is dramatically, at great cost, making the window of uncertainty much smaller. So they can design a system that knows that some very, very large percentage of the time, the clock on some other node will be close enough. And by close enough, they mean that, you know, they can reach out to it again after that amount of time has gone by and see that something's taken effect. So even if you, you know, spend an enormous amount of money to use atomic clocks and GPSs, you know, the thing to remember there is that still doesn't actually give you consistent time. That That's actually an impossibility. What it lets you do is reduce the amount of uncertainty. Yeah, we're gonna hit, you start to hit you know limits of relativity in quantum mechanics as you scale this up. Well, even for the GPS systems, they do have to adjust the clocks from time to time because being in movement in the in orbit changes the atomic clock at a different rate than a clock that's on Earth. And you go read some papers about GPSs, and they have to actually adjust the clocks for relativity already. Oh yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's not possible to get absolutely precise time. And right now we can, as people on Earth, on Earth kind of deal with it. If you go far enough in the super high scale, you just can't. And there was a very, very high level protocol that NASA put online. I'll try to find a link so it can be put with this that basically deals with how do you have reliable communications over multiple planets or whatever and huge distance when latency can be in hours or days or whatever and lots and lots of possible failures. 
and you just have to deal with things in a different way and have different expectations. Yeah, the DFN, the Deep Space Network, is is yeah, pretty that, that, that's the one, yeah. engineering. But I, I think when designing distributed systems, you know, one of the lessons to take, you know, that is actually useful from all this talk of you know relativity, is to realize that any given part of the system doesn't actually get to act like it's got an omniscient view, right? That that really is the same thing as having perfect consistent time. You have to act like an observer, like a single person on Earth, not like, you know, a God's eye view. And if you build your systems that way, you know, it's at least one less way that you're lying to yourself and going to get caught later. So, I agree with that. Yeah, I think we've, um, I think we've sort of got a good sort of overview of the subject. I think we may have to come back to it in more detail in future episodes. Why don't we get to, uh, picks? If people have set up a picks. You know, some new, some Erlang tech or something you've seen doesn't have to be even tech related that you just want to share with people. So, Justin, why don't, um, sure. So, you know, we've been talking about distributed systems and, you know, one of the things that I've been, you know, really interested in both because I'm, you know, personally invested in it, but also in general, the state of our industry is the, the rise of distributed teams of people. Uh, being closer and closer to being a norm. And I think some of the same interesting things come into play, which is that you can only make that work if you have autonomy and you don't pretend that you have, you know, a single, you know, boss or organizer in one place that's really making everything happen. Uh, and I think some of those same principles are being applied now by a bunch of companies. You know, we try to do it, but so do a lot of others where you actually get a more resilient system of people that's able to do better things despite whatever happens to it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's actually, you know, likely to be the, the worldwide most resilient distributed system we've got. And it's the one I find most exciting. Yeah, that's an interesting challenge because at some point it's impossible to have everyone in the company or sometimes even in a team to all be at the same meeting or just to have them working at a company at the same time. I mean, there's going to be just differences in how it's distributed that just doesn't make it work and whatnot. So you have to have a team that's never going to be entirely complete and still be able to work. I mean, also you have the issue of, I worked at this company some years ago, we had an eight-person team building a project, and there was one week where suddenly four members of the team were gone. One person took some time off to get married. One of the women on the team was having a tough pregnancy and was put on bed rest. Uh, somebody else's wife had a baby, and the fourth guy got called up for military reserve duty. So suddenly, half our team was gone, and you know, just had to deal with it. Um, you know, and in that case, pretty much none of those could you sell a person. No, you can't go. I mean, two of them legally you can't. The other two, well, practically you couldn't. And you know, teams have to be able to deal with missing members. Do you have a pick? Uh, actually, I, I I don't really at that time just. Past few weeks, I started working at Heroku, and so I'm just very, very busy adapting to all the code in there and getting in that. So, no, I actually don't have anything related to a fix or whatever to do to, to have. Simon, yeah. Whoops, yeah. am I muted? No. Uh, yes, I have. I have a couple of things. One is this conversation's been making me happier and happier that I work in generally small to medium systems and small to medium companies, and it's reminded me a bit of why I really actually do like Erlang and let it crash and, and these primitives. 
And it has less to do with building Skynet and more to do with building systems that are resilient and flexible. So I have kind of an odd pick for people, uh, which is to take a look at, I, I think programmers know Christopher Alexander from his, uh, design, pa- or his, his pattern language, which the design patterns people picked up and talked about. Uh, but lately he's been talking more about, about systems that actually, sorry, that was a rooster. Um, about systems that incorporate flexibility all the way down, uh, that where the development is continuous and where basically you can see change at any given moment. So his, his latest is called The Battle for the Life and Beauty of the Earth, A Struggle Between Two World Systems. It sounds kind of grandiose. It definitely doesn't sound like Erlang. But what amazes me is that I think Erlang was built for this deeply structured world of of telephone systems, but it seems to apply really nicely to another world of sort of infinite flexibility and resilience. So that would be my completely off-the-wall recommendation for folks. Uh, I have two picks. The first one, to follow up on Simon's, is if you want to play with sort of something else on the Erlang ecosystem, but um, have sort of other things as a Robert Ferding's Lisp-flavored Erlang LFE, which is a Lisp that runs on the Erlang VM. You can create Erlang modules and so on in Lisp. It's kind of fun. You can even do code generation and other cool stuff. Um, and I've been playing with that. And I should be talking about it at the Erlang user conference. Uh, the second one is not an Erlang tech technology. It's um, an Israeli tech that I'm rather impressed by. It's our Iron Dome system. We've been having rockets fired at us from uh, Gaza and other places, and they've the uh, military and some of the contractors here built a system, apparently using .NET, but we'll forgive them, that basically can sense a rocket being fired, track it if necessary, and if needed, shoot it down with like 90, 85-90% reliability, uh, which is just pretty really cool. It's a really awesome system. I'll post some videos and I'll link to a video in the show notes on YouTube. All right, great. So thank you guys for joining us. Uh, we will, I'll send out invites for whenever we try to figure out when we can record another one. Uh, and, uh, any, any last words? Thanks a lot. It's been fun. Uh, Simon, why don't you mention your book before we, we go? Oh, sure. Yeah, I wrote, uh, Introducing Erlang. It's a book that's aimed at really complete beginners to Erlang. I think in some ways it's maybe a, a prequel to Fred's amazing Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good or the other Erlang books. So if you're really just starting out, it could be a fun place to go. And we'll put a discount code up for that in the show notes. The one I had is unfortunately expired, so i got to get them to get me a new one. So if you come to the show notes, by the time this airs, we'll have um, we'll have a discount so you can order hopefully, all the respective books of the authors here online. And I wrote, uh, also wrote uh, Building Web Applications with Erlang, which is around uh, the YAWS web server. Unfortunately, I had not discovered Web Machine yet when I wrote it, which is unfortunate because the Web Machine is pretty cool. You can um, always add a chapter. This is true. I probably will if I can ever find some time. <laughs>